Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. I have, in, I have engaged a woman who I met at the Climate Restoration Conference last year at the United Nations, who is giving a presentation on the whole subject of ice melt and the restoration of the ice. I found it so fascinating. So I've been wanting to have her on the show, Dr. Leslie Field, a little bit about her. She's got an excellent background for exactly the kind of work that she is doing. Also, needless to say, an impassioned environmentalist like we are here at A Better World. Uh, she is currently a lecturer at Stanford University. She's teaching an interesting fall seminar course called Engineering, Entrepreneurship, and Climate Change, now actually in its 11th year. And people who are taking it are really getting so much out of looking at the interface of these distinct but totally related subjects. She herself has a background in chemical engineering from MIT and uh, a master's of science and PhD in electrical engineering from UC Berkeley. She got involved in this really back in uh, 2006 when she started this organization called ICE 911. And she was the CEO of it, the founder, now is the chief technical officer. So she has a chance to really be hands-on in the development of projects that are focusing on, well, one of the most serious problems we are currently faced with today, which is ice melt. Those of you who have seen this show over time know that I did an interview, for instance, with Dar Jamal on the end of ice. And that hit all of us really deeply when coming to understand that people who have been climbing the ice, uh, mountains and the like, visiting the Arctic, visiting the northern tip of Alaska, have been just grieving at the loss. And so on one hand, there's the loss of the beauty and the ability to hike on that ice. But on a much deeper level, there is an ecosystemic collapse and that has ramifications for all of our futures. And that is what Dr. Fields is addressing rather eloquently, as you'll see, with her current uh, solution, actually, to this event. So, Dr. Leslie Field, welcome to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Mitchell. This is really exciting. I'm so glad. It's so important to educate more and more people about the issues around this. Uh, we get terrified and aggrieved, but also with the work that you're doing and why I felt such elation upon hearing you speak last year was that there are solutions. There are real world solutions that are practical, that are not actually even all that expensive and are truly implementable when we have so-called political and economic will behind it. So uh, if you would, would you please walk us through? I know you have a little video clip that you'd like to show us. And if you would just walk us through what you've been doing no, and what you have found. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. All electronics off, all devices off. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just walking us through, Leslie, it's not a problem. Walk us through. Uh, 
the video uh, and then what it is you've been doing and what you're intending to do in the upcoming future. Sure, and thank you. Uh, so I'll start a screen share here. So uh, what I'd like to do is take us through uh, a bit of what ICE 911 is about. We are fighting for every degree and every degree is worth fighting for. And I'd like to take us through a video and uh, see if I can put this in the right mode here for uh, getting that to play. Oh, gosh, slideshow from current slide. There we go. And so what this is is a wonderful video that NASA put together. It's the best ice melt video I've seen yet. And what you will see in this is what the ice was like just a few years ago, right? It's been over the last few decades that we've lost so much of the bright reflective ice in the Arctic. And you can see the sea ice age up here. So we're looking at the central Arctic. We're looking at far north in Alaska, as Mitchell talked about, where we've done some experimental work on lake ice. And we'll be looking at what happens to ice flow around all kinds of important areas. So here it goes. And it starts a little bit slow, but while it's starting slow, watch what happens. We export some ice past Greenland through an area called the Fram Strait. Uh, we have, this is showing us the sea ice, uh, you know, how much of it is older than four years old. So how much of it is highly reflective. And you're seeing month and year ticking on by here rather relentlessly. And as this goes along, you may notice that we export a great deal of ice through an area called the Fram Strait here to the side of Greenland. And we're gradually losing what's been the Earth's historic ice shield over the last hundreds of thousands of years throughout all of human evolution, basically. Um, we're losing what has been our bright reflective ice shield that helps fend off summer sun, summer incoming solar radiation 24 hours a day in the Arctic is disappearing. So we're only at 2001 and you can see already there's been a great loss of ice. Um, and we'll just keep watching. It speeds up. So it's around now where I should just stop speaking and let us drink in that there's no natural way back. This isn't one year's weather. This is an ongoing relentless decline. Boom. This is terrifying. It is. When you think about it, it's incredibly terrifying. Have you done any modeling, Leslie, that would show that without the phenomenon of global warming, uh, the trap, trapped greenhouse gases, what this speed would be? Um, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I, I do find just watching this is, I mean, there we are, right? So, yeah, that's pretty alarming. Um, what we have found, oh, you could stop now. <laughs> what, what we see here is this difference between where we were and where we are now. And, and what the acceleration here happens, you know, Don Perovich is one of the best known, best beloved uh, Longtime ice researchers, an AGU fellow, and uh, you know has a has a terrific background in this. 
looking at this and showing in, in association with the announcement of one of the Arctic report cards recently, um, just showing that, you know, old ice is gone from about 30% of Arctic sea ice cover to about 1%. What this means, what this gives us is another boost to global temperature rise, which is a different question than you asked, but it's, it's really key. Mm -hmm. uh, it adds, uh, depending who you're talking to, which expert you're talking to, claims between 25% to 50% added global temperature rise to what we're already seeing, the rate that we're already seeing from the CO2 already in the atmosphere, to which we're trying to equilibrate, basically. The Earth is reaching an equilibrium at that new atmospheric composition with all that CO2 in it. This adds, again, this is a comparable effect, really, of what CO2, what greenhouse gases are already doing, of adding another quarter to another half as much again, this one effect. As far as uh, what would happen with methane, is that what you were asking? Um, well, I was asking if we had any kind of modeling that showed that without the onslaught, if you will, of greenhouse gases being collected over the last especially 200 years, uh, what would be the rate of ice melt? As you said before, it's been as long as you know the human species has been around there has been some uh, rate of ice melt and that's only to be expected but there's a difference between natural ice melt and accelerated due to anthropogenic uh, effects yeah um that's an excellent question already in the late 1990s we were having a summer decline of something like 100,000 square kilometers per year of ice summer to summer that wasn't coming back the following summer. And that's atypical, right? And that was the result of, as you say, a century or so of greenhouse gases joining the atmosphere, right? Um, I don't have, uh, <laughs> I don't have that number, um, but it's been, it's been an acceleration. I remember Actually, when I visited Don at Krell, he was kind enough to give me a tour. I had asked for one, and he, he was kind to a fellow researcher here, um, showing me the, the acceleration even back then, a decade ago, that was already happening. He was one of the first people, I think, to be picking up that it really was a feedback loop. And by that, uh, you know, giving you a looser answer uh, than, than quantitation here, but by that, uh, and, and it's certainly out in the literature, I just don't have it in my head, but by that, that means that the more the ice melts, the faster what remains melts. And the accelerating factors here are, are numerous. Uh, one of them is that the oceans are warming. As we're reflecting less sunlight, the ocean's getting warmer. The Arctic temperature rise is about double what the temperature rise in the rest of the world is, you know, rate of warming. Um, so we're getting... Well, there's ready. a feedback loop that gets established. And that's so a feedback loop. Yeah, that's it worsens exponentially, feedback. virtually. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a positive feedback loop, which makes you think perhaps that's a good thing. No, it, it just means it's getting more and more. That The more it happens, the faster it keeps happening. Increasingly worse. <laughs> Increasingly bad, yeah. yeah. And so what that means is that, you know, the temperatures in the oceans are rising, so all the ice is floating on 
on the ocean, right? It's getting warmer from underneath. The ice itself is shrinking, and so it's more surrounded by warmth here, um, right? The the atmospheric temperature is increasing at the same time. There, there's so many things increasing on this pressure on the ice to go ahead and melt. Um, and then, of course, the greenhouse gases uh, have not been decreasing in the atmosphere, so so things are increasing in that way too. Yes, it's a relentless positive feedback loop and it's yeah it's dire um exactly so you know looking at this i and looking towards the future i decided to try to do something about you know global temperature rise i'm an inventor and an engineer and so it's like what can i do for my kids who were pretty young at this time as i was realizing yes. maybe there's something i should do um yes. and these Hollow glass microspheres. What I what I basically thought. So now we're into your solution, your proposed solution, as someone who has yes, as of now, uh, fifty eight patents to her name. So yeah, I, when I see a big problem, I I feel driven to try to solve it. Yeah. And so I think I'll skip past that first and go here. My my thesis, if you will, my my thought was that if open ocean reflects almost no incoming sunlight and old established ice like we used to have reflects almost all of it you know here we are right there the feedback loop um mm -hmm. so that as we melt ice we are warming things faster and faster young thin ice reflects a fair amount but not as much as older ice it's because it's more perfect it's more thin it it does it doesn't have as many imperfections to reflect from but older ice does and often you know if you have a nice snow layer on top of it you can hardly do better than snow and my thought finally is that because of all of the angles or what, what? yeah uh -huh. basically as you're trying to reflect something like say from a pane of glass or a glass of water or something you're you if you've got one interface you're reflecting a bit right you have a well to get really right you have a change in refractive index so that means you're going to be reflecting some right mm -hmm. but if you have many many area uh, spots on your optical path in which you could reflect something it will and each each bounce is reflecting a bit more and so when you've got older ice you've got many layers you've got nooks and crannies if you will there's brine inclusions which is salt water that hasn't quite all run out yet there's oh. air gaps there's so it isn't just the thickness it's also the layering and then when you've got snow you've got a very lovely fluffy interface right every single flake really yes right, right. another opportunity to bounce to to reflect the light to to be a high albedo or a high reflectivity thing mm -hmm. and so the idea that i thought as i was looking at this sort of thing and saying wow relentless feedback loop relentless decline big impact on climate it's like is there a safe material is there some kind of safe material that over the right strategic areas, we could put a very thin layer, as illustrated here, reflect just a bit more light and make the most cautious intervention you could make to give the world time to make all the transitions to the sustainable energy solutions we need, which as I learned as I got deeper into this, is gonna take us decades to do even going at full speed. So to complete those needed transitions, we need a little buffer. We need a little time. Could we slow some dire effect? And this is the one that drew my attention. As how, what could we do really cautiously? Well, if we could rebuild ice in an area that until recently it was there, that sounds like a pretty natural solution. Everything in the area has gotten used to having all that ice. 
if we used a material that was as natural as possible. What I came to was hollow glass microspheres, and I have a little jar of it here. I don't know how well this is going to show up, but you know, it's it's a very uh, powdery thing. You could you could think of it as a very foot friendly uh, layer of beach sand, really, because fundamentally that's pretty close. And we it's silica. It's silica based. Silica based glass, and silica is one of the most common materials on the planet. It's it's in all our ecosystems, and so we've all evolved with it. So there's nothing weird uh, chemically about that. And so the idea was that if we could put hairs width thickness, is what we're finding in the lab, just mm -hmm. a little bit, over strategic areas of ice, we could perhaps make a big difference. And so that was the idea. And so this is what the material then is. It's this hollow silica glass microspheres. And what I really like about this is it's hydrophilic, so it'll cling to a water or ice melting surface. It's not going to get airborne. We can choose. But not oil. It's, it's hydrophilic, so it doesn't want to attract oil, which means that if critters are going to run into it, they're not going to be picking up oil as well. And we can choose a size range that isn't a respiratory hazard. So... You know, you think silica, sometimes people are worried about some silica-based uh, lung diseases. That's for crystalline silica. That's very different than this amorphous form that's in glass. Okay. So, it, so you have a choice of getting something really safe. And over years of testing, you know, the safest materials I could think of, this, this looks like our front runner, and it's commercially available. So there's a lot of information about it. There's Is a lot there any sense of its possible toxicity or is there any based on your background in science is there and material science is there any sense of any downside to its use in the ecosystem yeah i'm a very cautious person you've probably heard hearing um so first do no harm is rule number one we've done some preliminary ecotoxicological testing in, an, in a couple of outside labs where they you know have tested this on some fish and bird species no ill effect but we want to dig much much deeper we want to be sure, and we've got we're very excited we've got a collaboration that we're building with a norwegian group who are ecotoxicological experts syntef uh, and mm -hmm. we're putting in joint proposals to get this work funded to really have marine biologists digging in and help us understand is there any downside because we want to know you know much sure. I do not want to make the world worse. And if of there course is a, not. Yeah, if there is some problem, then we will pivot, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley, we will pivot in a way to say, okay, if that was a problem, let's pivot to something that's better now. That you might have to rename it Silica Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs> so that's... So so that's the idea. That's the solution. But there's that's the solution. And so this is born out of, you know, well over a decade, Leslie, of thought and consideration of yep. different types of materials, the different levels of seriousness of degree, if you will, of the problem. And this is a solution that you have come up with. And you talk about, of course, on your website, and in the talks that you give, uh, at least in the country, if not beyond. Uh, so what tests, tell us a little bit, if you will, about the testing that you've done to date. Cool. Yeah, we have done a lot of testing. Some of it is climate modeling. So predictive testing, you know, trying to see 
what would the impact be of brightening, you know, an area, say, in the Fram Strait, that area where I showed you the ice export? What if we make that brighter? What kind of impact does that have worldwide? And we're working with professional climate modelers at Climformatics and broadening our collaborations in, in addition to just really get a handle on what would the upsides and downsides be. Are there any small areas? This is what we're looking at here. Is it about 0.1% of, excuse me, uh, what we're looking at here is an area of less than 1% of the area of the Arctic, uh, you know, ocean, ice, ice area, potential ice area. Um, and what we're finding, this is a peer-reviewed paper we're about to submit with, with the climate modelers, um, that we can have a really, uh, it looks like, large impact, a leveraged strategic impact from doing something like that. So climate modeling is part of it. Physical testing of our materials to see are they as bright as we think they are, you know, in the lab. We're doing more and more of that. You've heard about the upcoming toxicological testing. And then we do testing and field testing. I, you know, I started out in buckets of water um, to look and see what the effects were, how these materials behaved, and all kinds of others. I was thinking rather broad-mindedly. Yes, I tried daisies. I mean, why not? You know, you start looking and see what might be natural, yes. what might work. Um, and uh, this, as I say, is the most promising one so far. We've tested on various lakes with permission, uh, always freshwater so far. Now we're moving on to seawater. What uh, have you found with the testing in the lakes? So we found that we can uh, improve ice retention. We can delay the melt by a matter of, you know, days. And that's a pretty profound thing. The most controlled test along those lines we had were in an artificial pond in a backyard in Minnesota with a very sophisticated homeowner who was very good at helping with the instrumentation and measurements himself. Mm. And uh, we could see, uh, you know, and we had it on video and, and measuring the ice thickness and all wonderful to work with them. And nice. uh, yeah, and, and we got to see that over the course of a Minnesota melt season, we would have, it, I was thinking of it as being like a, a geneticist working with fruit flies. We could have very short cycles because you have, you know, you've, you've got your freeze, fine, Minnesota gets nice and cold, and then it melts, and then it goes through these freeze-thaw cycles for days. And so every afternoon you're melting, and every night you're freezing again, and you could watch just in the morning. You'd get out there in the morning and, and catch how, how much thicker and, and longer-lasting the ice was under the material than elsewhere. So it was really pretty nice. We got to segment that pond and really have good controls. Uh, for scientists, for engineering work, you always want to have controls. An untreated area and a treated area, mm -hmm. you want to be able to quantify what the differences are. So that was quite rewarding. We've also tested as far north, I don't think I have a picture of it here, sorry. Um, uh, we've tested as far north as Barrow, Alaska, or Utkagvik, Alaska, which is its original and, and new name. Uh, and that's working with people who live there in the Arctic um, and are our science logistics providers. And so that's uh, right... Yeah, that's right around here. Uh, if I've got near it. the very upper tip of Alaska. Yeah, as far north in the U.S. as you can go, mm -hmm. and uh, working with with the people who live there is really pretty educational. Um, they help they help keep us alive. Uh, you know, uh -huh. they 
uh, and they are very sophisticated about you know what it takes to keep machinery going in the cold. It's it's you know if if you mess up in a climate like that, you're probably not going to live very long. So everybody that we have worked with up there at UIC Science is so focused and so sharp and so aware continually of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 really wonderful to do. Now with COVID. We have a test going, our first test on seawater, but we're doing it in a, oh, goodness. Your phone rings, my phone rings, life goes on. (laughs) Um, what, What we're doing now with COVID, where we don't want to run the risk of bringing an infection from California up there to a, to a population where there are a few hospitals, right, out on the frontier, mm-hmm. um, we are increasing our collaboration by sending really full instructions of here, I guess, to keep everybody safe, you're going to need to do the whole thing yourselves, please. And so it's really interesting to watch that. We're, I'm calling this action at a distance, but I think it's the future of field work for a while. Um, and it's really nice to see the levels of what you know, oh, right, we've never explained that part here. You know, here's how you set up this part of the instrumentation. Here's what we need to see back here in California to make sure things are progressing right. And so these Remote are, testing, as it were. Very much, right? <laughs> yeah. And and this is in contained pools with seawater that they've now pumped in from the nearby shore. And then we'll be putting materials on these with instrumentations, or they'll be putting materials on these with instrumentation monitoring it. And we'll see how this does in a sea ice test. And, and we're very excited about that. So, yes, there's... And when do you expect this to be happening? So the pools just got set up last week. And so that's exciting. Excellent. And it's like some of these professional pools, you know, in, in very... Uh, established research areas that that look at ice. Uh, Krell is one that I toured, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, the U.S. Army's Cold Regions Research and Environmental Lab or Engineering Lab, can't remember what that other E is for, but they had uh, very well instrumented giant pools, and that's how they did much of their testing on ice. And so we're we're reproducing that at a lower budget, <laughs> but you know, seeing how we can how we can gather data there. Once permissions are gotten, once we have the results from the biologists that we'll be collaborating with at Cintef and such, then we can dare, you know, I believe at that point enough information will be there for us to get permits that we can do some small tests out on ocean. But we won't do it without permits. We're very transparent. So uh, based on that idea that you'll be doing small tests, let's just take the idea of local tests and expand, if you will, on that idea that you actually can treat a small area of the Arctic, but get rather expansive, large results. Could you speak to that phenomenon a bit? Yeah, we uh, so understand that, again, um, our budgets are modest. <laughs> we are a nonprofit. But not uh, but only have- from that point of view, I mean just from a, an actual physical law point of view, right. that by even treating a small part like the Fram Strait, which you said is 1% of the whole, you can still get uh, ramifications, if you will, and consequences for the larger part of the Arctic. And, and Just talk, I, if you would, about that relationship and that ratio. 
Yeah, so that's that's extremely exciting, and that's what working with our climate modelers is is showing us, is that it looks like we can have far-reaching impacts into helping with ice retention throughout the Central Arctic, for instance, is is what their modeling results are indicating. But when I was talking about the budget, I'm what I want to say is these are some preliminary results on you know a rather small ensemble. Climate modelers in your audience will say, ah, oh, small ensemble. Okay, right. That was what they could afford. And what that means is that we want to have it replicated the way science and engineering always does. We want to have sure. other groups replicated with larger ensembles, larger resources to do that. And we've just been at, I have to say that worldwide collaborations are so exciting. And we've got, um, you know, growing conversations with GeoMIP, for instance, there's a whole modeling intercomparison program that I was on a two hour webinar this morning with, as we were sharing our results and, and describing how people can collaborate to make their results larger. I think increasingly, uh, you know, Collaboration is the name of the game. Uh, again, yes. we have a separate Norwegian group that uh, we put in another proposal with on some more modeling, you know, more climate modeling that will help make the case there and figure out the best ways to deploy the materials. There's so many details. And the more that we can collaborate with true experts and really be completely transparent with our results and share these results amongst ourselves, the better off the decision-making we can have will be. The other thing that I wanted to say is that it isn't just the technical work. I think I have the slide in here, right? There's the whole technical thread, but I believe very strongly that the people who are, you know, saying this looks like an interesting solution, yay, are not the people who should decide, and therefore this is in the best interest of humanity. And so we're doing everything we can to try to provide the information about how do things perform. Sorry, I'm doing it the wrong direction. How do things perform? And then help feed this into policy and governance and international collaborations like the UN, like the Arctic Circle, like, like the, you know, all the Arctic facing nations to then see what is in the best interest of humanity? What are the risks? What are the positives? What are the negatives? Because if we do nothing, if we do nothing, the results are pretty dire, right? We have had such enormous losses already, trillions of dollars if you start totaling them up just recently mm -hmm. because of the climate disruptions that we see already. And if you fuel some of these smaller research efforts to answer those questions so that then we can decide internationally on what's safe, what's in the best interest, what should get funded to try to start deploying jointly. We want to be involved, but we won't be driving those, I think, size deployments. Then you have a chance of helping to make that time for humanity to get to make the transition that we need to safer ways, to more sustainable ways which really has impact not just on humanity, not just on my kids, your kids, you know, our grandkids, our future, but on every single living being on earth, the whole sure. web of life that's been supporting us. So sure. that's really uh, kind of where we're at with trying to get as much information as we can from every bit of our work on how, how does this work, then get enough information to make those decisions. Well, you know, I very much appreciate your care and caution with all of this. And there's the real world, which is saying to us that uh, time is our enemy in this regard. And uh, 
did I lose you? There we are. No, I'm and, here. I, I just stopped sharing. Yes. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, thank you for all of that. Time is our enemy. So we need these collaborations. Um, people know how many people know how dire the situation is. We have already passed tipping points from which there is no returning. Those of us who have been following the subject, and I have been literally since the 1970s when I was a wee lad, honestly. Um, of course, I didn't have the science in my mind and the statistics, but just through pure observation of pollution practices at the time, and I, they were really practices. They were ongoing, uh, you know, uh, air pollution, soil pollution, water pollution, as policy virtually of major corporations. So when you start adding the decades up and look at what we have today as our climate crisis, then you see that, well, all climate modeling actually fails because it keeps coming up short with the amount of time we really have left. Even the United Nations last report, you know, is just, you know, it says nine years, but they don't actually know that because Everything in the climate, as you well know, and I'd love to have your feedback on this, is precipitous. That's what I say to people all the time. You don't know the amount of damage that has actually already been done, where it's sort of like uh, being um, where there is uh, a landslide. You don't know what has happened right before you get there that's going to cause the landslide. But uh, already a lot of... what you're talking about, yes. Sorry? You're talking about tipping points, yes. There's tipping points, exactly. So a lot has already happened that will cause that landslide. So I see the entire ecosystem as fragile in that way. It's dealt with a lot of insult and injury for a long time, but now it's at a point where these tipping points have been passed. So your work, Leslie, this is just another way of saying, your work is of seminal importance and the amount of time there is for doing a lot of climate modeling is not that great. So I would be interested in hearing what you have to say about the climate models that you have employed in looking at the kind of the global effects some work in the Arctic could have and what you see as, let's say, a, a bright spot in the future if, let's say, money isn't an issue, if permissions and, sort of, and all of that isn't an issue, where you can really go forward, let's say with your Norwegian group, and say, let's implement, let's test, let's do it. Yeah, that's a whole lot to unpack. <laughs> I, I'm going to go back a little bit and say <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> that in the 70s, it sounds like we were growing up at the same time, um, yes. right? It was as though it were all inexhaustible and there's nothing we puny humans are going to do that's going to make any difference. And the solution to pollution is dilution. Did you used to hear that? that was oh, I did. The insanity. What a farce. <laughs> yes. I mean, it sounded wrong when we were kids and it, yes, know, it, it did. grow up, you know, all the more. Wow. <laughs> really wrong what are you guys uh, thinking <laughs> yeah, what were they thinking um but there we are um i i do think a lot of it comes down to and, and a lot of the difficult decisions are going to be short-term happiness versus long-term happiness which is the mm -hmm. same kind of 
discussions I had with my kids when they were in high school, right? You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and, That's funny. And, and well, right, but it's true. And yeah. if I were worrying about, again, my kids, if I were worrying about them starving tomorrow, you know, versus them having a thriving life throughout their lifetime, yes. my priorities are going to be different, right? Yes. And so I do, I do understand some of these drivers of people to be looking at the short-term good versus the longer-term good. But I, I really believe you've got to look at both or we're doomed. Um, as far as the rays of hope, what I see are we're not alone. Um, there are growing collaborations. There are more and more people understanding how dire this is. We're already started down the sixth wave of mass extinction on the planet. You know, we're by all means. So, and and we're close to some pretty frightening sounding tipping points if if those projections are true. Um, mm-hmm. And so, what we've been dealing with so far that people have been thinking about till just recently. Um, are these threads of trying to do something about it of climate mitigation. Okay, great, right, let's stop polluting, let's sequester CO2 if we can. Yes, okay, Let, let's let's get a handle on that. So that's mitigating. Become fossil fuel free, zero waste. There are some very wonderful principles and actions that are taking place worldwide. And the we sequestration welcome is this. Yeah, yeah. Sequestration right. is enormous. Yeah. It's it's the right it's the right thread. So that's mitigation. Then there's adaptation, right? And that is, you know, build bigger seawalls, you know, move everybody to the fortieth floor of your skyscraper. You know, whatever, <laughs> right? Inland, <laughs> inland. <laughs> inland, right? Um, yeah, some of the science fiction <laughs> stories there are Denver is really the desirable place to move, right? Um, and so it's it's those are two two legs of the stool, right? The mitigation. Mm-hmm the adaptation, and then there's this new thread. With what we've been working on, we had somebody come along a few years ago and say, this is restoration. That was Peter Fiakowski, Foundation for Climate Restoration. And I was like, you're so right. That's exactly what we're doing. And we are realizing, there's a growing number of us realizing that that third leg of the stool, the restoration, it's really absolutely essential. And that is how you start to try to cautiously bring back some aspects. Like for us, it's okay, reboot reflective ice in the Arctic. If you can make ice last longer by artificially increasing its reflectivity in this way, if that can go far enough, you could actually naturally start rebooting that older ice again is, is the hope, you know, so there are so many ways to try to leverage something. Um, And so, those three legs of the stool and a growing consciousness, you know, really does give me hope. My students at Stanford give me hope, right? You mm-hmm. were kind enough to mention that class. My, my enrollment yes. quadrupled this year, which told me that the consciousness really went up. Ooh, I was looking really at going up. I was looking at that with the pictures of Greta Thunberg, you know, when she first started her strike and then a year later talking to thousands of people instead of alone in front of her parliament, right? (laughs) And I think it's a similar consciousness raising is happening, which is going to be absolutely essential. Well, you know, we've got a few things going. I mean, on one hand, uh, there's what we call consciousness raising, which is fantastic. There's also an entire uh, increase in the fear quotient that people's lives, this is becoming a survival matter, that anyone who can extrapolate based on past experience about where we're going, we're going into the jaws of, well, you know what? So, I mean, I want to give credit to, to both sides of the coin. 
I'm all for greater consciousness. A lot of what goes on in a better world is about that. But let's not make believe we are at such a point of direness. Fear is, you know, uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner said, you know, when the 2,000-year-old man said, you know, um, what was your mode of transportation? Carl Reiner asked the 2,000-year-old man back then. He said, fear. <laughs> so, well, I could advise that. It shouldn't be underestimated. <laughs> I could advise anyway. that if you, if you act, uh, you know, attempt to communicate too much through fear, it just paralyzes the mind. Uh, oh, by so, all means, of course. Yeah, right. It's, uh, I mean, we all know it. We all acknowledge it. But we need to also keep our eye on the ball of what can we do. And I think you've got to never, ever give up, right? And, and that every degree really is worth fighting for. I mean, I've... I love I, that phrase. It's it, great. Yeah. yeah. It was, and I, I came up with that, you know, of, wait, every degree does matter. Every degree is worth fighting for. When I had some really alarmed students listening to a panel that I'd been on it, I think mm-hmm. it was an AGU panel, American Geophysical Union, mm-hmm. and about various, you know, what's happening with climate. And they just were like, well, but we're not going to hit the one and a half or the two degrees. So what do we do? Do we give up? And it was like, oh, heavens, no. <laughs> you know, it really, because it gets unimaginably worse if we do, even if we go past that. One thing about the Arctic, just to sort of bring ourselves back, is it's looking like from what the literature and climate modelers are saying, and we do need climate modeling and we need to accelerate it quickly. And then within three years, I'm hoping that we have answered all these questions enough that we can then be ready for that international decision-making of, is this in the best interest of humanity? Yes, let's go. Or no, okay, let's figure out what else we need to refine, right? But yeah. uh, So I think we're in a hurry, but we're in a cautious hurry. Um, but <laughs> spoken I, like a true academic. <laughs> well, I'm a true engineer too, who gets out yes, there and learns indeed. to drive the snowmobile to the test site. I do appreciate it. I really do. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But but we do. You know what? What we're realizing is that without addressing the Arctic, there is actually no way that we can see that we could hold have a prayer of holding to the one and a half or the two degree limits. And if we go past them, yes, it's still worth the fight because my God, a five degree limit is so much, right? Billions of climate refugees if we're doing that. So Mm -hmm. we really need to hold it as low as we can, fight for every inch we can, but without the Arctic, there's no way we're going to hold below two that we can see. That, that we are understanding. So it is an essential part of the solution set. It's just like we need mitigation, yes, adaptation, restoration. We need all the CO2 sequestration, all the other measures people are taking. And we Absolutely. need to have Arctic restoration as well. Absolutely. Well put. Yes, all of the other elements are very much required uh, as part of the full holistic solution, if you will. And uh, here at A Better World, we're working on several of those initiatives, actually. But uh, I do ultimately come around to the point that you're making, which is just kind of a, an intuitive sense that without the ice in place, all else sort of, uh, pardon the expression, melts away in importance. You know, you need that is sort of like if there's a hierarchy, which there is, this is at the top. You need that 
ice. So that's one of the reasons I was so interested in having you on the show to talk about this. I do have one last question, which I sort of offered before, but I just want it for clarity for our listeners and viewers, which is upon successful execution of your plan, assuming there is no real downside and our common sense shows us that there really isn't the size, the, uh, what is it? The micrometer that you have of the size of the, uh, of the microsphere is so small that it is about three times smaller than anything that could possibly cause damage. And even then, well, I remember one was 10 and one was 35. Yeah, what I want to say is you have to be sure not to get too small because you don't want to have an inhalation hazard. So there are, yeah, right, there, there are constraints. There's a range. You are in that range, as I saw from your uh, PowerPoint. Right. You we're, are we're in making that it so it's safe. Yeah. healthy place, right. Okay. So with all of that held, you know, steady and controlled, uh Upon implementation, based on everything that the science has shown you already, uh, what do you think the ultimately uh, the ultimate effect will be um, with your own sense of projection and climate modeling? Well, best case, right? <laughs> best case is we do rebuild a large part of the Earth's icy. I'm sorry, I left out incredibly important. Uh, variable, which is that we have gone to a renewably based um, economy, uh, sustainable, we are removing through carbon sequestration of different types, uh, you know, a lot of the greenhouse gases, methane, of course, included. Um, so lifestyle changes have occurred, et cetera, et cetera, all those downstream benefits. So with less pressure, on the ice to melt and the implementation of what you've got. That's the scenario I wanted to paint. And that, that really is where we're trying to get right. Not, not wiping out, you know, huge swaths of the species on earth and right. Not, not driving things literally to extinction. And you're right. so right to emphasize that, you know, as I've, I've tried to put it a couple times, but you can never say it too often if we don't get a handle on the greenhouse gases, if we don't get a handle on getting to sustainability, no matter how much intervention we're making in the Arctic, right, we're, the, the ice will be melting ever faster. So right. it, 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 you know, it's this right. like the largest single safe lever that we can implement relatively quickly because it does take a while to turn over the infrastructure on the rest, but uh, you know, it's all got to be proceeding with all due speed. And so it's really a both and yes we have to stop causing the ice melt and the restoration work that you and your organization is doing so on the positive side so yep well leslie field i want to just thank you so much for being a guest today and uh sharing with us the good work that you're doing the excellent work and I feel it's really going to make a difference. And I'd love to follow up with you at a future time when you've taken a couple of more steps so you can report back to our audience about uh, the progress being made. 
Oh, wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for this invitation. If anybody wants to find out more about us, we're, our website is ice911.org. And, uh, you know, you can, you can stay posted on our <laughs> adventures. Indeed. <laughs> yes, it's, Indeed. Uh, it's important work. It is certainly challenging, especially in these times. Um, one of the gifts of COVID, let me end with that. Because sure. It, you know, it's, it's dreadful and we're all in fear of our lives and our loved ones' lives and jobs and houses. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And the one gift that I see is that it makes clear that these invisible things, you know, the yeah. case, the, the COVID, right? The, yes. the, is, so the virus can get you whether you believe in it or not, right? I mean, it's there. It's reality. It's unseen to our naked eye, but there it is. And the analogy to CO2, to greenhouse gases, is yeah, so clear, right? Yep. I look out at the sky. I can't tell how many ppm CO2 are there, right? It's not, it's not something I'm seeing. The Arctic is handy in that way, as another researcher has pointed out, uh, Professor mm-hmm. Benzerin, is that it's so visible. It's very hard to deny that the ice is melting because you can see it. And I think the gift, if you will, of the pandemic is that people are realizing that, you know, you can see people falling ill, but it's because of this unseen thing. You can see the kind of trouble the planet's in, you know, coming from this originally unseen thing. And if you actually, uh, you know, can listen to the science and, and be comfortable that there are unseen things that really matter in this world, um, and, and can take that in, get past the fear to the what can we do about it, I think we'll all be a lot better off. Yes, indeed. Well put. And I agree. And what we're really looking forward to is not seeing the ice melt, but the ice being restored. And then we're going to say, that's Leslie Field's work right there, <laughs> that huge chunk of beautiful ice. <laughs> That would be that I see a polar so nice. sitting on. <laughs> yes, you're painting, you're painting a bright future. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Thank you again, Leslie, so much for Thank being you, on the Mitchell. show today, and to be continued. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for a Better World. I so appreciate your feedback. Just write to me at mjr at abetterworld.net. Love to hear your thoughts and comments, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.